Lesson 5 for April 22-28 to 28, Living for God Sabbath afternoon, April 22 Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to another week's study and we find from the writings of Peter that there's lots of things we need to know about, but also some careful study reveals some gems. And as we open your word this week, we pray that those gems may be available to us and we may see how they act and interact with our lives. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is First Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's read that again, First Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The Bible writers knew the reality of human sinfulness. How could they not? The world reeks of it. Besides, they knew their own sinfulness as well. As it says in 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. They knew just how serious it was too. After all, look at what it took, the cross of Jesus Christ, to solve the problem of sin. That's how deep and pervasive the reality of sin really is. But the Bible writers also were greatly aware of the power of Christ to change our lives and make us new people in him. This week, Peter continues on this same track, the kind of new life that Christians will have in Christ after they've given themselves to him and have been baptised. In fact, the change will be so great that others will notice it. Peter doesn't say that this change will always be easy. Indeed, he talks about the need to suffer in the flesh in 1 Peter 4 verse 1 in order to have the victory that we are promised. Peter continues a theme that pervades the Bible, the reality of love in the life of a believer in Jesus. Love, he writes in 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, will cover a multitude of sins. When we love, when we forgive... We are reflecting what Jesus has done and still does for us. Sunday, April 23. Being of one mind. Question. Read First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through to 12. What point is Peter making here about how Christians should live? What does he repeat that he already wrote about in First Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21? First of all, First Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain from 
his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And First Peter 2, verses 20 and 21, For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. Peter starts out telling them all to be of one mind, homo friends. He's not talking about uniformity in the sense of everyone having to think, do and believe exactly the same way. The best example of this idea is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through to 26. In these verses, Paul points out that the body is made up of parts. There are hands and eyes, but still together each part makes up the whole body. In the same way that church is made up of individuals with different spiritual gifts. But all believers are joined together with the same purpose and spirit. They work together to form a united community. Of course, such unity is not always so easy to achieve. The history of the Christian church sadly has shown this fact to be true of all too often. So, Peter warns believers against not agreeing with one another. Then he tells his readers how they can show this Christian ideal of being united. For example, Christians should act with sympathy, he tells us in 1 Peter 3.8. Sympathy means that when one Christian suffers, then others will suffer with him or her. When another Christian rejoices, other Christians will rejoice with him or her, as uh, we find in 1 Corinthians 12.26. Sympathy enables us to see the perspective of others, an important step along the way to unity. Peter then says we should love one another in 1 Peter 3.8. Jesus himself said that the way you can recognize his true disciples is that they love one another. John 13 verse 35. Furthermore, Peter says that Christians will have a tender heart in 1 Peter 3 and verse 8. They will have compassion for one another's difficulties and failings. As we read in Testimonies for the Church, volume 9, page 188, Crucify self, esteem others better than yourselves, thus you will be brought into oneness with Christ. Before the heavenly universe and before the church and the world, you will hear unmistakable evidence that you are God's sons and daughters. God will be glorified in the example that you set. And so to finish here, how often do we do what Peter says, especially the part about not returning evil for evil in 1 Peter 3.9? What kind of death to self must we experience in order to follow these words? How can we have that kind of death? And that brings us to my favourite Bible text, which I've had now for close on 60 years. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Monday, April 24, to suffer in the flesh. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, and our hope of salvation is found only in him, in his righteousness which covers us and causes us to be accounted righteous in the eyes of God. Because of Jesus, you are, as Ellen White writes in Steps to Christ, page 62, accepted before God, just as if you had not sinned. But God's grace doesn't end just with a pronunciation, a declaration that our sins are forgiven. God gives the power to overcome our sins as well. Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 21, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, as well as Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through to 11. What is the link between suffering and victory over sin? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Romans, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And Romans 6, verses 1 through to 11. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a small Greek word used in 1 Peter 3.18 that emphasizes the comprehensive nature of Jesus' sacrifice. It is the word hapax, H-A-P-A-X, which means once for all. Peter uses hapax to emphasize the comprehensive nature of the suffering of Jesus and his death for us. The phrase, for as much then, in 1 Peter 4.1, links verses 1 and 2 with what has just been said in 1 Peter 3.18-22. 
In these earlier verses, Peter points out that Christ suffered for our sins in order that he might bring us to God in 1 Peter 3.18, and that baptism doth also now save us in 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism, then, is perhaps the best context against which to understand Peter's words. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, 1 Peter 4.1. By baptism, the Christian participates in the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus. The Christian has made a choice to live for the rest of his or her life, earthly life, no longer by human desires, but by the will of God, 1 Peter 4.2. This can be accomplished only by the daily surrender of self to the Lord and the crucifying of the flesh with its passions and desires, as we read in Galatians 5.24. In Romans 6, verses 1 through to 11, Paul says that at baptism, Christians are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. At baptism, we have died to sin. We need now to make that death to sin real in our lives. Paul's words in Romans six eleven, Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Give the secret of the Christian life. And so to finish today, when was the last time you found yourself suffering in the flesh in order to fight against sin? What does your answer say to you about your Christian life? Tuesday, April 25, Born Again In Christ we have a new life, a new beginning. We are born again. If this means anything, especially for those who accepted Christ after childhood, it must mean that they will live differently from the way they did before. Who hasn't heard some incredible stories of those who, having been in the world, experienced a radical transformation because of Jesus and his saving grace? Indeed, after talking about the death to self and the new life we have in Jesus, having been baptized into his death and resurrection, Peter then talks about the kind of changes one will experience. Question. Read First Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through to 6. What changes will happen in a person's life, and how do others respond to those changes? First Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached unto those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit." The terms Peter used that relate to alcohol abuse are excess of wine, drunkenness, revelings, banquetings, and carousing in various translations of these verses. To use modern phraseology, one's partying days are over. 
In fact, according to Peter, the change that a Christian experiences should be great enough so that those who knew the Christian in his or her past life will think it strange that he or she no longer takes part in these same dissipations. As we read in verse 4, in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Thus, we can see here a chance to witness to unbelievers without having to preach. A godly Christian life can be more of a witness than all the sermons in the world. Question. What does Peter say in these texts about judgment? Well, here is elsewhere in the Bible, in John 5, 2 Corinthians 5 and Hebrews 9, Peter makes it clear that one day there will be a judgment for the deeds done as he says, in the flesh, in 1 Peter 4.2. When Peter talks about the gospel being preached also to those who are dead, in verse 6, he is saying that even in the past, people who are now dead had, when they were alive, an opportunity to know the saving grace of God. Thus, God can justly judge them as well. And so, to finish today... As a believer in Jesus, how differently do you live now from the way you did when you didn't believe in him? What difference has Jesus made in your life? Wednesday, April 26, Sins of the Flesh Enlisting the wrong things that people had done in the past and that they stopped doing after becoming believers in Jesus, Peter also lists what could be called sexual sins. Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3 again. What else does Peter list here? 1 Peter 4 verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Two words have a distinctive sexual connotation. Lewdness, or eselgia in Greek, which means sensuality, and lusts, epithumia, which means lust or desire. Yet, It is all too easy for Christians to give the wrong impression about sexuality. The Bible is not against sex. On the contrary, God created sex, and he gave sexuality to humankind to be a great blessing. Sexuality was there in Eden at the beginning. As it says in Genesis 2, 24-25, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. It was to be one of the key ingredients that would unite a husband and wife in a lifelong commitment that forms the best background against which to raise children. And this closeness and intimacy would be reflected in what God seeks with his people, as well, as if we read the whole of Jeremiah chapter 3, the whole of Ezekiel 16, and the whole of Hosea chapters 1, 2, and 3. In its correct place, between a man and a woman in marriage, sexuality is a profound blessing. In the wrong place, in the wrong context, it can be one of the greatest destructive forces in the world. 
the here and now devastating consequences of these sins are beyond human calculations. Who among us doesn't know about lives ruined through the abuse of this wonderful gift? Question. What do the following texts have in common? 2 Samuel 11.4, 1 Corinthians 5.1, Genesis 19.5 and 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 8. What do these verses all have in common? Second Samuel 11.4 Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11 It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And Genesis 19, verse 5. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. And 1 Corinthians 10, and verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Of course, one doesn't need to read the Bible to know the stories of the pain and suffering that these sins have caused. Yet, we must be careful too. Certainly, sins of this nature can have powerful negative effects on people, and society tends to frown upon them. But sin is sin, and Christ's death covers sexual sins as well. As a Christian, you should be careful, especially in this sensitive area, to make sure that you, as it says in Luke 6.42, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck. From your brother's eye. Thursday, April twenty seven. Love covers all. Even in the time of Peter, Christians lived with the expectation of the soon return of Jesus and the end of this present world. We know this because in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, he writes, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. In other words, be ready for the end. In one very real sense, too, the end, as far as each one of us is concerned, is never more than a moment after we die. We close our eyes in death, and whether thousands of years pass or just a few days, the next thing we know is the second coming of Jesus and the end of this world. Question. According to Peter, because the end of things is at hand, how should Christians live? First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through to 11. But the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion for ever and ever. Amen. 
Besides being serious and watchful in prayer, Christians are to, as it says in verse 8, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? How does love cover sin? A key is found in the text Peter is quoting, Proverbs 10.11, which reads, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. When we love one another, we more readily and easily forgive those who hurt us, who offend us. Christ's love leads him to forgive us. Our love should lead us to forgive others. When love abounds, small offences and even some large ones more readily are overlooked and forgotten. Peter was certainly expressing the same idea as Jesus and Paul who say that the whole law is summed up in the obligation to love God with our whole hearts and love our neighbours as ourselves. As in Matthew 22 verses 34 to 39, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. And as Paul in Romans thirteen eight to 10 Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. Peter also urges Christians to be hospitable. The second coming may be near, but Christians should not withdraw from social relationships because of it. Finally, when Christians speak, they must do so as those who are speaking the words of God. In other words, the seriousness of the time calls for serious communication about spiritual truths. And so to finish the day, love will cover a multitude of sins. Who has sinned against you? How can you reveal the love needed in order to cover that sin? Why is it to your own advantage to do so? Friday, April 28. From the book Counsels to Parents, Teachers and Students, page 267, we read, The love that suffers long and is kind will not magnify an indiscretion into an unpardonable offence, neither will it make capital another's misdoings. The scriptures plainly teach that the erring are to be treated with forbearance and consideration. If the right course is followed, the apparent obdurate heart may be won to Christ. The love of Jesus covers a multitude of sins. His grace never leads to the exposing of another's wrongs, unless it is a positive necessity. End of quote. Think, for instance, of how Jesus handled the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. We usually look at this as a story of Christ's grace to a fallen woman, 
And that's true. But there's a deeper element as well. In confronting the religious leaders who brought the woman to him, why did Jesus write down the guilty secrets of their own lives, as Ellen White wrote in Desire of Ages, page 461, in the dirt, where the words could instantly be obliterated? Why didn't he openly accuse them, declaring before everyone what he knew about their own sins, which might have been just as bad as, or even worse than that woman's? Instead, Jesus showed them that he knew their hypocrisy and evil, and yet was not going to expose it to others. Perhaps this was Jesus' own way of reaching out to these men, showing them he knew their purposes and thus giving them an opportunity to be saved. What a powerful lesson for us when we need to confront those who have sinned. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, dwell on the question of unity as opposed to uniformity. Are there some areas in which we need to be in complete unity of thought in order to function as a church? If so, what are they? And how can we find this needed uniformity? In contrast, what are areas in which a diversity of opinion is not harmful, but, in fact, could be helpful? Two, What has been your own experience with the concept of the need to suffer in the flesh in order to cease from sin? What does that mean? Does God's power in our lives to change us mean automatically that we don't suffer in the flesh in order to have victory? If not, why not? And three, look around at the devastation that alcohol has produced in so many lives. What can we do as a church to help others see the danger of this drug? What can we do to help our young people be aware of what a mistake it would be even to experiment with a substance that can do them such terrible harm? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled A Changed Life, Part 2. Montserrat didn't tell her friends where she went on Saturdays, but they noticed changes in her life. She had become more responsible and wasn't the first one to suggest mischief. When vacation came, Montserrat attended her neighbour's church. Her parents noticed she was going out on Saturdays and asked where she was going, but Montserrat evaded answering. When the family went to the mosque to pray, Montserrat went as well. Instead of reciting the prayers she had learned long ago, she prayed in her heart to Jesus. Her mother noticed that she wasn't reciting the prayers and asked why. Montserrat decided that she should no longer hide her faith from her parents. She would be honest and tell them she had become a Christian's. Her parents became angry. They forbade her to speak to her Christian neighbour or attend church. They urged her friends and teachers to do what they could to force her to renounce her Christian faith. But as much as Montserrat wanted to obey her parents, she refused to give up her Jesus. Finally, Montserrat's father told her that she was no longer his daughter. She had to leave the house, and he wouldn't pay for the two remaining years of her high school education. Montserrat was terrified of being on her own, 
But she prayed, and God's peace flooded over her. She claimed Psalm 27.10 as her hope. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Church members helped Montserrat pay her school fees, and a friend who lived near her school let her live with her. Montserrat often tried talking to her parents, but they refused to listen. She felt very lonely. Church members visited Montserrat's family, pleading with her parents to let their daughter return home. Finally, her parents allowed Montserrat to return. But things didn't go well, and Montserrat realised she could not continue living at home. She asked a church elder what to do, and he suggested that she apply to study at the Seventh-day Adventist University in Nigeria. There she could live and study in peace. The church would sponsor her and pay her fees. Montserrat enrolled at Babcock University to study nursing. Her parents are now proud of what she has achieved, and they even visited her a few times while she was at Babcock. Montserrat prays that one day her family will accept Jesus and says that she hopes her story will help other young people to stand firm in their faith. Montserrat studied nursing at Babcock University in Nigeria, right there in Africa. This lesson was read by Dr. Percy Harrell. It was recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind. This podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel.